Well, good morning again. It's lovely to be with you here at St. Peter's. Uh, I'm here physically. Uh, you'll be listening to this, I imagine, in your homes or wherever it is that you are. Maybe some of able to gather together to, to listen to God's word, wherever you are. It's wonderful to add my welcome to that which uh, we've already received and to carry on working through together this wonderful section of God's word, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you've been with us for the weeks, you'll know where we've been. If this is your first time listening in, you're enormously welcome. And we're coming to the final section of, of the sermon today, this little concentrated burst of Jesus's teaching at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And some perhaps of the most familiar uh, bits of Jesus' teaching that we'll ever have heard, whether you're someone who's familiar with the, the teachings of Jesus and the church, whether you're new and listening to this as someone who's not sure what you make of Christianity, I'm 100% certain that some of these truths are going to be familiar in, in sound to you. And the question before us today is not only what do they mean, but how do they fit into the wider flow of the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, they can sound almost disconnected, these ones, such a pithy and sharp little teachings in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 12 that we've already had read, uh, that they can almost feel randomly thrown together, like Matthew has uh, got the greatest hits of Jesus and has just strung them together without all the coherence that you might find in an album. Whereas actually, I want us to see today that they fit in absolutely brilliantly to the flow of what Jesus has been saying in the sermon, and so speak to us today with an even greater cutting edge than they might otherwise have. I mentioned that we've come to the final block of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to show you a little bit of that as we dive in. The Beatitudes, all the way back if you're with us at the start of chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, are the introduction to the sermon. And then what we'll see next week in chapter 7, verses 13 to 27, is the conclusion. It's a climax, essentially, of invitation, warning, and promise. And in between the introduction and the conclusion, you've got the main body of the sermon. It runs from chapter 5, verse 17, through to chapter 7 and verse 12. And the reason I say that is because of the key phrase that we've just had read to us of the law and the prophets. And that, that features both in chapter 5, verse 17, and here in chapter 7, verse 12. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said that he has come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. That is to flesh out in his own flesh every righteous requirement of the Old Testament. A loving God and loving neighbor. Loving God with all his heart and soul and strength and loving his neighbor as himself. And it's that lived righteousness that he then calls on his followers to emulate, to live out themselves in their own lives for the kingdom. They're to have a greater righteousness, we've seen, than the scribes and the Pharisees, made even stronger in chapter 5, verse 48, by being told they're to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. And it is that call to fatherly God-likeness, true godliness, that is expressed throughout this whole sermon. And almost just by way of summary, you might remember or even scan back through the chapters and see how the disciple is called to live in the world, horizontally we might say, how we're to live towards the people of this world, how we're to live towards the things of this world. But actually, throughout the sermon, it becomes really obvious that it's not just ethics that Jesus is talking about. Some would say that the, the Sermon on the Mount is all about how we live just in the world around us. But actually, no, this 
life in the world is explicitly, non-negotiably anchored in a vertical relationship with God, one that is devoted to him and living for him and his priorities in all things. That's the note we ended on last week, the call from Jesus in chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we could summarize that the greater righteousness that Jesus calls his disciples then and now to have as a life lived in the world, totally in light of our Father in heaven. It's what Jesus calls his kingdom followers too, to be so devoted to the Father in heaven that they will then live out their discipleship in this world towards others and towards material things. So you could think of the whole Sermon on the Mount as having these two axes, one coming from God in heaven where we are anchored and one going out into the world around us, moving out in love and in godly service. And I hope that that framework is going to really help us as we come to these somewhat enigmatic and yet wonderful verses. And as we remember those two things, devotion to God and life with others, well, actually, we'll see that that same pattern is what Jesus closes his teaching with. It's summed up in that golden rule of chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. A command, a strong call to live rightly and wisely, discerningly, with others in this world, from Christian family right through to callous enemies. And it is a call anchored in humble dependence upon the Father. In our passage today, therefore, and throughout the whole sermon, actually, Jesus is saying that there is nothing more urgent than to live well with other people. And there is nothing more foundational to kingdom living than depending upon our Father in heaven. So it's a great place to be, sitting together under God's word now, thinking through those two things. Uh, And the first thing that Jesus says in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, is that we are to think and act rightly as God's children towards others in this world. All through this central section of the sermon, there have been verses that functioned as like the overarching drop-down menu for all the teaching that's going to follow. So back in chapter 5, there was the refrain of, you have heard that it was said. You could look at chapter 6, verse 1, and and the call to beware of practicing your own righteousness. In chapter 6, verse 19, to not lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, seven verses 1 to 2 have the same function. Almost a menu that you double tap and you zoom in on to see more detail. And Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And what Jesus is doing here is calling us as his followers to a right and appropriate discernment in the world, to relate to others and to God in a way that is totally informed by a right knowledge of who they are in relation to others and to God. The awkward English of verse 1 actually captures the, the force well. It's a strong command to not judge others. Well, why? Because ultimately there is a judge that is higher still than we are or any human court. To take upon ourselves the mantle of the judge would be a grotesque mockery. 
You know, a child can go into the cupboard and, and raid it and put on his dad's jacket or his mum's shoes. But in no way would that actually make him an adult. Well, the stakes are even higher here. Because if we take God's judgment, that final judgment on ourselves, well, we run the risk of judgment ourselves. That's the, the clear end point of verses 1 and 2. Goes even further than that. Jesus says, whatever ultimately our approach is to people and God, and whatever measure we use in the language of verse two, well, that is what will be used back towards us. So if we live in the world with a self centered judgmentalism that is unforgiving and hypocritical, well, we will be met with stern and unbending justice. You can see that in verses three to six. If we live with regard to God in a a self-dependent refusal to pray and to rely on God's goodness, well then in verses 7 to 11, that's going to lead to us not receiving those blessings that God stands ready to give to his children. And so 7, 1 to 2 calls us in both of these sections to think and act rightly as God's children. And first, as I've said, is played out towards others in the world in verses 3 to six. And Jesus begins with our Christian family in these first few verses, verses three to five. One of Jesus' great priorities is that his people would live together in a community of love, of forgiveness, of humility. And so a huge part of discipleship in the world will be a spirit of, of mutual support rather than one of judgment. Now, these are justly and hugely famous verses, but I'd want to suggest they're readily misunderstood. This is not a call from Jesus to never be discerning. He's not saying to us, you must never call out the sins that you see in somebody else. But he is warning us, commanding us not to be hypocritical in doing so. So this is not a command that renders loving Christian rebuke impossible, Rather, it is one that that puts a judgmental spirit totally out of bounds and makes any correction about somebody else one that only serves them and doesn't put them down. It's vividly dramatized what Jesus is getting at in the almost comic image of verses three to four. Uh, We're in a a carpenter's workshop, do you see? Uh, We're worried about specks and logs. And, And wouldn't it be fascinating if Jesus was remembering in some fashion his own childhood and an apprenticeship as a carpenter. Two people, two brothers are working side by side on the bench. You can picture the scene with me. And one notices that the the other is being a tad careless. He's rubbing his eye occasionally. He's got some sort of irritation in there, but he's not stopping. He's still trying to hammer in the nail. But every time he does, he's going squint because of the thing in his eye. So brother one starts getting a little bit irritable. He's probably an older brother, I feel. I speak as one myself. And he says, look, look, I'll I'll help you. No, no, I'm fine, comes the predictable reply. Look, number one says, stop being so stubborn. Just just hit the nail there. Look, I'll, I'll do it for you. No. Well, look, at least let me hold the nail for you. Fine. Okay, you'll do that. So, so the brother puts his hand on the nail. Whack. Hammer comes down on his thumb. And then the tempers fly. You, you muppet. Why can't you just admit that you've got something in your eye? Look, plain as a pike stuff there. There's a speck. That's the problem. Just take it out. Well, well what thing, the brother says. That, that thing there. Well, you're a fine one to talk, the one with the speck says. 
How can you see my speck with that whopping thing in your eye? What thing, brother number one says? Well, the great plank jutting out. Why are you getting so angry with me, you hypocrite? Now, it's deliberately over the top, I know. It's almost like the Chuckle Brothers or the Three Stooges. But actually, there is a very sharp point that Jesus is making. It is totally unproductive and wrong. It's a marker of poor judgment and a harsh spirit. For a family member to correct another about a fault when they themselves are totally blind and in denial about the self-same fault within their own heart. You see, it's not just the simple presence of similar sin in the heart that means you can't correct your brother or sister. If it were, then no one would be able to say anything to anyone because all of us struggle with sins of of general and particular sorts within our own hearts. And it would make the the words of verse 5 totally meaningless. Jesus is not looking for silence here, but he is looking that you would not be a hypocrite, that that I would not be a hypocrite. That's the word he uses in verse 5. It was the word that came up throughout chapter 6, something the disciple must not be. They must not be a play actor. Someone who is far more concerned with the earthly horizon and who is not interested in living for their father in heaven. No, he says the better way of righteousness is there in verse 5. Remember that there is a judge that is higher than you. Remember that there's a father in heaven who loves both you and this brother. And then remembering that, reflect on yourself soberly with right judgment. Take the log out of your own eye. Breaking it down, I take it that means we are to acknowledge the presence of sin in ourselves. We're to ask if that same sin that is so bugging us now is residing in our own hearts. And if so, we are to take that plank out of our eye, not to become perfect. For this side of Jesus' return, that is not possible. But we are to abandon a culpable blindness and denial that is only leading us now to lash out at our brother and run him down, rather than to love him and take the speck out that he might more clearly see his own father in heaven. When we have considered ourselves, when we have taken the log out of our own eye, Well, then, verse 5, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, that's Jesus' goal, that his disciples would be brothers and sisters who see clearly and serve one another in taking the specks of sin out of our own eyes. It's not to lose our desire to remove the speck. It is to have that desire based on the good of the one across from us and not based on our own preference. We could actually go even further. We could say that Jesus wants his followers to be accurate and strengthening eye surgeons, one with another, but we need each other to take the specks out of our own eyes. You see, specks are bad in themselves. They stop us seeing clearly, but we are to help one another, not like blind guides said a few weeks ago that that you could compare the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew 23, where Jesus uh, pronounces woes upon the Pharisees as hypocrites, this same word. And there in verse 16, 
They are called blind guides, those who try and teach others when they themselves are lost in sin. And Jesus says, no, no, you're to do it with clear sight. So practical from Jesus, isn't it? And it is so important for landing it for us today in 21st century Dundee. We are called to this same spirit, this same living with one another, this right thinking and right acting. And you'll know as well as I do that, that the whole area of correcting one another like this can be fraught with danger. We're so prone to logs in our eyes, and so we just blunder about doing more damage and judging others rather than helping them. But I love this from Jesus, for we see that the goal, which is to serve one another, is never to be done in or to breed a kind of witch hunt atmosphere. We are not to be a community of self-righteous judgmentalists, but self-aware fellow disciples who have arms round each other and are helping one another along the kingdom way. So we are to take the specks out of one another's eyes, to point out mutual sins that are clouding our vision as we seek to live in devotion to the Father and follow Jesus. You can't follow someone if your eyesight's all blurry and bad. But we need to ask for God's help to do that together with all humility and with no hypocrisy. We do therefore need to examine ourselves. If we see a family member struggling in an area of sin, do we examine ourselves before launching in or do we just go for it? Do we confess that sin to God? Do we confess it to them where that is appropriate? Are we wanting to truly serve them to see clearly or are we simply imposing our own standards on them rather than God himself? Here's a key question to test our hearts. Are we willing to receive correction from them as well as offer it ourselves? You see, so much correction can come from a self-centered heart and that is what Jesus is radically guarding against. And if we can't receive correction from somebody, that may well indicate that we are off beam in this way. If someone points out a speck in my eye, is my first instinct to, to check for it to see if it's there? Or do I go looking for the plank in their eye that I know must be there simply so that I can ignore and invalidate what they have said to me? Now look, different relationships are going to require different approaches. This is easier done in, in certain contexts of relationship than with others. So there is no charter here just to go around firing off left, right, and center. So much of church life gets marred by this sort of judgmental attitude, speaking from the perspective of a, of a minister. So much pastoral ministry can be damaged by this. You see, church leaders and church members, whoever we are, we all need one another so often we can hurt one another. I take it from Jesus' words here, we must pray and work to be humble helpers, not hypocritical blind guides, to be selfless speakers, not self-righteous superiors. Jesus calls us to be a community of loving discernment and service, not judgmental name-calling and silence. And would you just imagine with me for a moment just how beautiful how attractive, how necessary such a community like that is. I mean, it's so opposite to our world, isn't it? We can look around us and in the discussions about 
lockdown, about Brexit, about Black Lives Matter, about questions of gender and identity, there is so much name-calling, judgmental attitudes, hypocrisy going on. And it's so easy for us to, to wag the finger at the world out there and say, look at them getting it wrong. But we must hear Jesus' words pointing into the church and ask for his help to not be like that. Because if we are, well, that is a, a beacon of light, a city on a hill, like Jesus said his people were to be, displaying God's love and kindness to those around them. Personally, as I reflect on our church's life in St. Andrews, I'm, I'm hugely thankful for the signs of that in our midst. From what I know of the congregational life here at St. Peter's and chatting with some of the elders and, and church family at a meeting with Presbytery just a few months ago, it was a great joy and privilege to see this desire and, and ability in God's kindness to be a community like this. And where we see good signs, we must be thankful and ask God for more and more. And where we see challenges, we're to be humble and call on him for his help. It's a wonderful vision. But do you notice with me that that same right judgment is to be worked out not only with Christian family, but also with callous enemies? That, I think, is what is going on in, in this curious little verse in verse 6. Many wonder, well, why is, is that verse here? And if I were able to see you, I'd love to hear your own thoughts. Do feel free to drop me an email down at St. Andrews if you would like to on this. But as Jesus in verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I would suggest that this is Jesus laying out a spectrum of relationships that we have. I mean, one commentator has said that verse 6 is the hardest to understand in the whole sermon, so do feel free to, to disagree with me on this if you like. But Jesus says, look, if you are to relate this way over here with your Christian family, here now is how you are to relate to those who in a persistent and aggressive way are rejecting that which is most precious in this world. The language of dogs and pigs, uh, animals that are proverbially unclean and vicious, that are associated with godlessness, with violence, and with death, Jesus is using here to speak of those who would have nothing to do whatsoever with the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, the disciples listening are about to be sent out by Jesus, first in the middle of the gospel and then at the end as he returns to the Father. They're to be sent out as those who scatter the good seed of the gospel wherever they go. That which is described in Matthew 13 as the pearl of great price. It is that which is of supreme value and holiness, second only to Jesus himself in Matthew. It's that gospel which is set aside for a holy purpose, a specific one of, of being scattered. And Jesus says to his disciples, look, down at this end of the spectrum, when you're preaching the word, when you are passing on the message and the treasure of the kingdom, when you come across those who will only snap at you, who will only trample that underfoot, who want nothing to do with it but are unclean in their hard-heartedness, well, then actually, he says, you're not to waste your time with them. Don't give to dogs that which is holy. And do not throw that which is of surpassing value before a pig, lest it tramples it. You see, Jesus knows his disciples are going out as sheep amongst wolves, he knows they will be met with scorn as well as belief in chapter 10 and 15. You can see a similar note 
when he says that if they're met with this sort of reception from either communities or groups like the Pharisees, they're to shake off the dust from their feet and have nothing to do with them. Now, it's hard to know, isn't it, exactly when that is happening in our context. See, we rightly, I really don't want you to mishear this, we, we rightly hear the call of Jesus to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations. And so to, to, to walk away from someone, which is what Jesus seems to say here, feels very hard, even callous ourselves. Yet Jesus says, so great is the need for the holy seed of the gospel to be scattered broadly, that we are not to waste time or even it itself on people who simply despise it. Where loving, patient evangelism is met with nothing but scorn, then it is wise, Jesus says, to move on. Not to abandon relationship with someone, never to treat anyone with disdain, but to understand that so precious is the gospel that we're to seek actively elsewhere to cast it. Perhaps an example can, can help here. I spent a week recently down in Durham, university town in the north of England, doing a week of evangelism with the, the Christian Union down there. And one evening, a young man came in uh, to the tent we were in to, to speak to the speaker, I was told. I was chatting with another couple of seekers at the time, so I went over to introduce myself, said hello, and said, look, I'll, I'll be with you as soon as I possibly can. When I stuck out my hand to shake on saying hi, those carefree days when such things were allowed, he refused to take my hand. On introducing myself, he said he preferred to remain anonymous. Okay, all right, we'll see how this goes. So as I was chatting to the other couple of people, I, I saw him out of the corner of my eye having a real go at a couple of the young undergraduates who were running the week. When I finally got to speak to him, uh, upon giving my name again and asking for his, he refused to give it and proceeded then to hold me to account for, for every perceived wrong that Christians had done in the world. When I asked for his name again and how I could help him, he insisted that he wouldn't give me his name in case I used it against him, and then he demanded that I apologize for the various things that Christians had done. At that point, I, I said that I wouldn't, and that if he wished to remain anonymous, that was his business, but that I wasn't going to engage with him on those terms. See, he was a hostile hearer, disinterested in engaging with Christ at all. And I wasn't going to spend time with him when there were countless others who were wanting to speak of Jesus. And in the sense of verse 6, I did not cast the pearl of the gospel towards one who simply wanted to trample it underfoot. And I hope and trust that according to Jesus here, that is a right judgment to make, not assuming the role of the judge in heaven, for that young man's eternal soul is between him and God and no one else, but rather exercising right discernment in the world. Now, we need wisdom for this. We need wisdom for how to relate to our brothers and sisters rightly. We need wisdom to know how to relate to dogs and pigs in the language of Christ rightly. And please do chat with your elders, with one another in your, in your life groups and in whatever form you can if you've got specific things you'd like to knock around with that and take it further. And as I said, my email address is on our website. Please do get in touch with me if you want to, to ask anything else. But we are to act and think rightly as God's children towards those we are in the world with together. That's the, the horizontal conclusion. But as we said at the start, the way we live with each other is anchored in the way we live towards God. And that is why Jesus 
in verses 7 to 11, moves on to speak of how, as God's children, we are to act towards God himself. And Jesus, I think, wonderfully, daringly almost, but with profound insight, applies this call to right judgment and discernment even towards how we view God himself. You see, all through the sermon, Jesus has hammered home for us that we are God's children. Jesus, the Son of God, is our elder brother, and he's the one who's been teaching us to live for God as our Father, to speak to God as our Father, to depend upon God as our Father. But he knows that we will so readily forget that glorious truth that God is our Father and is the one who stands ready to bless us. If we just pause for a moment and think ourselves, I think we'd acknowledge we can so quickly drift from a rock-solid confidence that God is for us and that God loves us. Uh, We would rarely deny it outright, but we will certainly, in the sufferings of life, doubt it. We may not question it in general terms. We may look at those around us and say, I know God is the father of Christians, but I'm not sure how that applies to me personally. Because in my own sufferings and anxieties and fears... I'm just not sure if he does love me that way. I think often the place that will be shown is in how we pray. That's why Jesus speaks of prayer here again and calls us to think and act rightly towards God as our Father. Not in a radical act of service, but simply in loving and believing speech to God. He doesn't focus on what we pray for, that was covered in the Lord's Prayer, but rather here he focuses on how we pray. And it is anchored in knowing who God is. The first sort of prayer that that is right towards God is persistent prayer. Do you see that in verse 7 and 8? Ask, seek, knock. That's used twice over by Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock And it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Just like a child asking its father repeatedly for a good thing. Like the same child who then goes looking persistently for the present it knows is hidden somewhere in the house. For a child knocking at the door of its parents room. Maybe not even knocking but but just coming on in any way. That's what prayer is to be like. It's underlined by the promises of verse 8. Whoever does this, well, it will be given to them, Jesus says. Now, we know from, from the Sermon on the Mount, this is not just a blank check of asking for anything. We know that our prayers are not always answered according to our desire or decision. And that simple truth covers a a wealth of heartbreak I'm very aware of, even as you listen to this now. We'll all think of situations in our lives where we plead with God, and it seems to us that our prayers are unanswered. But Jesus says, no, they are always answered. God's will will be done, and that will will be good. But we know that that will will not always be easy as we live in this broken world. But the persistence is rooted in the fact that God is our Father. Verse 11 is the anchor for this. If you then who are evil 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, that persuasion that God wants to and will bless us with good gifts is the most profound engine of persistent prayer. Perhaps the most vivid, reluctant giver in in literature, at least, and in drama, is the master of the workhouse in, in Oliver Twist. Let me just read out a little bit of this famous scene. The evening arrived, the boys took their places. The master in his cook's uniform stationed himself at the copper. His pauper assistants ranged themselves behind him. The gruel was served out and a long grace was said over the short commons. So a killer line. The gruel disappeared. The boys whispered each other and winked at Oliver while his next neighbours nudged him. Oliver had, had drawn the short straw and he was the one doing this. Child as he was, he was desperate with hunger and reckless with misery. Please, sir, I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length in a faint voice. Please, sir, replied Oliver, I want some more. The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with the ladle, pinioned him in his arms and shrieked aloud for the beadle. Now it's a a dramatic scene. But I wonder if sometimes we can function in prayer more as though God were this master than that he was a good father. We might ask God for something once or only for a couple of years, thinking that God's slow as we understand slowness, fearing that he must not care all that much about us. And so we get used to not not asking persistently, but we are to do so. God stands ready to bless us, not to aim a blow at our heads, to give us good things and not a clip around the ear. I was wonderfully encouraged recently reading on the reflections of an Australian pastor, Peter Adam, on 50 years in ministry. And one thing that that stuck out to me was an encouragement to persistently pray. His brother, he said, was converted 50 years after he himself was. Now, as one who has prayed that same prayer daily for 17 years, I was encouraged to keep going. God's timing is not our own, but his character is certain. Let's keep asking, seeking, and knocking. Not only, though, is is right prayer persistent, it's faithful. And by that, I don't just mean asking for the right things, but asking in real faith that God will answer in perfect goodness. Verse 11 reveals God's attitude, but it also reveals the outcome, that he will certainly give good things to those who ask. That confidence runs right through every verse of this little teaching. Verse 7, it will be given, found, and opened. Verse 8, the one who does these things will get what they ask for. Verse 9 to 10 fleshes it out in these vivid word pictures. Of course, no earthly father does these things. And so if we fathers, speaking very personally, who are evil, which is not flattering from Jesus, but sadly is is absolutely accurate, if we know how to give good gifts to our kids, well then how much more God? He will give us good things, Jesus says. So we ask for his will to be done on earth as in heaven. We ask him to to give us our daily bread, what we need 
to bear with and rejoice and participate in that will. And sometimes that prayer is answered in ways that cut with the grain of our desires. Sometimes those prayers are answered in ways that cut against the grain of our desires. But it is a wonderful thing that God's answers are always good for he is always our father and he always loves us and he always listens to us. So we are to keep praying and we are to keep praying in faith. Sometimes I fear that, that we can pray because we know that it's what we should do, not because we know that God loves us to do it. We can pray thinking that the, the act of prayer is simply enough and forgetting the God to whom we pray, who stands ready to bless. Perhaps we do not have, as Jesus says later, because we do not ask. It's something I've been really helped in and challenged by through charismatic friends and colleagues over the years. You know, you could be a historian of the church and see that revivals are almost always attended by prayer efforts. Maybe we don't have because we do not ask. Think of our own personal spiritual power and, and joy in the Lord. Could it be that we do not have because we do not ask persistently, faithfully, fervently, not trusting in health, wealth and happiness, but praying for God's will to be done? So as we move towards a close and the great conclusion of this sermon, in many ways in verse 12, Jesus restates in one sentence what he's just been saying for 11 and what he's just been saying throughout the whole piece. He, he calls his people then and now to other person-centered love, love that only makes sense in light of there being a God in heaven who is a father and who will meet the needs of his people in this world and in his kingdom as we await the return of Christ. Now, why does this rule, this golden rule, as it's been called, only make sense in that way? Well, it's because this is not a rule based on you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, as some people seem to say that it is. As some have suggested that this is less radical than the call to love our enemies because here Jesus seems to suggest we're going to get stuff back from others. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But actually there's no reciprocity here at all. Jesus speaks to the disciple. He addresses our motives and actions and doesn't say that any particular result will come down the track. He says, you, my church, because the you there is plural, whatever you would want people to do to you, do to them. He doesn't say, do to them what you want and they'll do it back to you. He doesn't say, do what you think is good and they will do that back to you. No, what we should want and how we should live are the priorities of God's kingdom to be like the blessed ones of verses 1 to 12 in chapter 5, to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, to long for people to come to know Christ, to live with the things of this world in generosity and in God-centered devotion, to speak to him in persistent and faithful prayer, to love others. This is how the church is to be and to trust that whatever comes back, well, is given by God who knows best 
and who loves us. And so the golden rule of Jesus is to live towards others in light of our Father in heaven. And we know, don't we, that we need his help for that. It's so hard, it can be so challenging. So let's pray. Commit ourselves and our ways to our Father. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the gracious God. We thank you that you are our Father. And we thank you for the wonderful confidence we can have, even in the midst of real life and real pain, that you are for us and that you stand ready to give good things to those who ask you. We pray, Father, therefore, that we would live towards you with this right judgment and discernment. Help us never to be silent through fear. Guard us against mere duty in prayer. Rather, in and through your Son, Jesus, so capture us with persuasion and confidence and knowledge of your love that we would love to speak to you as your children. And as we live for you, help us to live rightly, wisely, discerningly towards those around us. Make us faithful but discerning evangelists, we pray, and help us never to be hypocritical, but only healing with our Christian family. May we never remove specks while being blind and in denial about logs in our own eyes. Rather, by your Spirit, give us clear sight, enable others to take the specks out of our eyes and equip us to serve all whom are around us as Jesus himself served. Help us to do unto others as we would wish them to do to you, knowing that this is the law and the prophets and empower us all to that end. By your Holy Spirit, we pray. And until the day that Christ returns and our faith becomes sight, Please keep us, change us, grow us, and guard us, we ask it, in the powerful name of Jesus and for the glory of you as our loving Father. In the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.